I don't know about for you, but my Bible just falls open to John chapter 20. Um, but 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? I think the answer to that question is going to be more and more as we see the day drawing near over these next several years. The answer to that question is going to be very important for us. Charles Hodge, who led Princeton in the 1800s, back when it was still a, a sound theological institution, he found the answer to that question there in those verses in 2 Corinthians. So he wrote this. This is Charles Hodge. He said that being a Christian, it is being so constrained by a sense of the love of our divine Lord to us that we consecrate ourselves to him or our lives to him. Picking up on that, John Piper explains it this way. He says, being a Christian does not mean merely believing in our head that Christ died for us. It means being constrained by that reality. The truth presses in on us. It grips and holds. It impels and controls. It surrounds us and won't let us run from it. It cages us into joy. The love of Christ controls compels, constrains us. Now, I would argue, respectfully, that this is true, and yet it's also something that we, as Christians, we often fail to live up to. That's an ideal that we often fail to reach, yet I hope, it is my prayer for us as a church that we are growing in this, I hope that we've grown in this as we've studied John's gospel. But because we often fail to reach that ideal, some stop trying. Some stop working to, to cast off their own sin. Stop working at Christ-likeness and, and sanctification. They stop working at, at being holy as Christ is holy. Paul also wrote this um, to the Philippians, speaking of perfection in Christ, he writes this. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So why does Paul work at this? Why does Paul work at, at pressing toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? Why does he work at being holy and Christ-like? He says, because Christ has made me his own. How does Jesus Christ make someone his own? By commanding our hearts, do not disbelieve, but believe. As we saw this last week, that's exactly what he did to Thomas, right? Do not disbelieve, but believe. Believe. 
But I want you to notice that I, I use the word hearts there. He commands our hearts, do not disbelieve, but believe. I didn't use the word mind. We understand that this is, um, that the, the kind of belief that we are talking about is a belief that involves our minds, it involves intellectual knowledge, it involves reason, but it's more than that because it also involves trusting, putting your faith in Jesus. C.S. Lewis, in his book, A Grief Observed, wrote this. this was, these actually were his thoughts after his wife died. He said, you, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. He goes on to say, it's easy uh, to say that you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you're merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you would hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? He says, the same is with people. For years, I said that I had perfect confidence in BR. This was the initials of an anonymous friend. Then came that moment when I had to decide whether I would or would not trust him with a really important secret. That threw quite a new light on what I called my confidence in him. I discovered that there was no such thing. Only a real risk tests the reality of a belief. It's risky to believe in Jesus Christ. It's risky to put your faith and trust in him for salvation, isn't it? Of course it is. Jesus spent much of the upper room discourse, much of John chapters 14, 15, 16, and, and even in his prayer in chapter 17 of John, much of that time talking about the, the risks of being his disciples, particularly because of the hatred of the world. Now, I'm not a prophet. I, I'm not the son of a prophet. But I believe that over the next several years, we are going to see worldly hatred toward those who claim the name of Jesus Christ continue to increase. It has over the last decade. It has over the last five or six years by leaps and bounds. It's going to continue to increase. And so Christians will be blamed for the spread of viruses simply because we continue to meet that's beginning to happen. We will be called racists or homophobes. They will say that we hate trans people and that our views of the family are outdated and, in fact, just plain wrong. They will say that our large families are immorally causing environmental destruction. The list will go on and on for what Christians will be blamed for. And the net effect will, of this will be that churches will be smaller and many will just simply close. And the ones that remain will have to stand firm in what they believe and, and it will come at a cost. Standing firm will come at a cost. It'll be a financial cost as we start to have, lose our tax-exempt status. It'll come at a relational cost with families and friends. It may come at an employment cost. On and on and on, right? 
But go back and think about this C.S. Lewis quote for just a moment. He started by saying this. He said, you never really know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. Now, I know that that's a generalization. But what do you think will happen when yours or your children's or your grandchildren's belief in Jesus actually becomes a matter of life and death? Will you stand firm or will you back down? Will we as a church, Logansville Community Church, will we stand firm or will we back down? Do you believe that God's promises are still trustworthy and true? See, the world is descending deeper and deeper and deeper into sin and death as a lifestyle, culture of death. But Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And this is how John summarizes the message that he, that he has been preaching throughout his gospel account. In some ways, the, the sermons over the last several months as we've been working through these final chapters of John's gospel, they've been kind of repetitive. I hope that you've noticed that. <laughs> really, the big idea has been believe in Jesus Believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus. There's a famous story in which a, a woman asked the famous preacher of the Great Awakening, George Whitfield. She said, she pulled him aside and said, why do you keep saying to us you must be born again? And Whitfield's answer was this, he said, because, dear woman, you must be born again. And so I'm here to keep pleading with you as we work through the scriptures to believe in Jesus, to keep believing in Jesus and all the more as we see the day drawing near. So look at these verses here in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Let me, let me read these, just these two verses. It kind of reads as a summary or a conclusion to the book and, um, and really the chapter 20 as well. So John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's just stop and pray again. Lord, I pray that I would decrease and that Christ would increase. I pray that you would give us ears to hear that we would believe, that we would be strengthened in our faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in that belief that we would know that we can have life, that we have life in his name, that we would know the surety of the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as with any biography... John has not written everything that he knows about Jesus, right? He admits this even about the signs. Rather, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote of very specific signs, signs that all pointed to Jesus' true identity. So early on in our study of this gospel, I told you that it, at least one of the commentaries on John 
um, divides the book into a couple of sections. I've said this a few times as we've worked through this. There's a prologue at the very beginning. That's the introduction in the first chapter. Then there's an epilogue at the end. That's really the last chapter. We will get to that, Lord willing, next week. And then there are two main books in the middle. The book of the signs through chapter 12, which recounts several um, uh, miracles that Jesus does, finishing with the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And then there's the book of the glory, beginning in chapter 13. The book of the signs and the book of the glory. The signs are the signs of the Messiah, the proof that he is who he said he is. From turning water into wine to raising Lazarus from the dead, the signs of the Messiah were the miraculous proofs that Jesus is the Son of God. And the book of the glory is largely Jesus' teaching. It's his preparation for this new messianic community called the church, this, this new covenant fellowship, this new assembly of the saints. But chapter 20, chapter 20 actually is both of these things. It's signs and glory. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate sign, the ultimate miracle, the ultimate proof that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life because it presents Jesus in glory, in his glorified, resurrected state as victorious over sin and death. And also we can see throughout this chapter his grace upon grace as he appears to Mary Magdalene as he appears to the disciples, as he appears to Thomas, and instead of condemning him for his disbelief, he says, don't disbelieve, believe. Throughout this book, John paints a picture. He lays out a road map that, that leads directly to salvation for sinners through the glorified Christ. So that's what this summary here in these verses is saying. We can even read this as being the, as I said, the conclusion to the gospel with the next chapter sort of being like a, a PS because chapter 21 really zooms back in on the disciples and as Jesus pours out his grace on them and especially on Peter. We will see that coming up soon. I think it was last summer, 2019, might have been 2018, I don't remember. Might have been 2017. We worked through Ecclesiastes. Do you remember working through Ecclesiastes? Remember the conclusion, the last couple of verses of the book of Ecclesiastes? This is how the book finishes. It's Solomon, and he calls himself the preacher throughout. So this is the conclusion of his preaching. He says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's how the preacher concludes Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> Similarly, <clears throat> John says, excuse me, <clears throat> John says, when all is said and done, when all of the evidence has been laid out, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by, that by believing you may have life in his name. The ultimate sign that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is his resurrection. I want you to be sure that you remember that. 
The ultimate sign that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is his resurrection. And while it was enough to accomplish his purposes of defeating sin and death, the resurrection, it was enough to accomplish those purposes, he went on to offer further proof. That's what's happening through the rest of the Gospel of John. He shows himself to many disciples. So wouldn't it have been enough for him to just simply have had the angels proclaim it? Wouldn't that have been enough? After all, it was was the angels who had proclaimed his birth to Mary, to Joseph, to the shepherds watching their flocks by night. Wouldn't it have been enough for angels to proclaim his resurrection? Why does Jesus go on to show himself to his disciples? Really, it's because God has always used men to proclaim God's covenant faithfulness. God has always used men to proclaim his nature and character, mankind, to proclaim his nature and character. He's used the prophets in the Old Testament and now the apostles in the New Jesus appeared to his church, as we read here in John chapter 20, because as John wrote way back in his introduction, back in John chapter 1, verses 14 and 16, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus in his glory, full of grace and truth, appeared to Thomas, who confessed, my Lord and my God. Thomas, an apostle of Jesus Christ, was then sent to proclaim that good news to the ends of the earth, to be his witness, to tell of the things that he had seen and heard. And to that end, Jesus offers there in the previous verse, verse 29, He offers a blessing for those who would hear the news or read the good news in the scriptures later. Those who would hear the news and believe without ever seeing Jesus. And these final two verses are a continuation and really a a conclusion of that thought. So not only does this serve as as a conclusion for John's gospel, gospel according to John for this whole book, But it also concludes the thought of Jesus' statement in verse 29 when he said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And go tell them, he says. In fact, the word that the ESV uses at the beginning of verse 30, the word now, that can also be translated as therefore, or I think the New American Standard uh, translates it so then, So the flow of thought goes like this. Those who have not seen the risen Christ and yet have believed are blessed. Therefore, this book has been composed so that you may believe. This is a book of evangelism. This is a book that has been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there are two truths of Scripture here that the scriptures tell us, that John writes for us, that are essential to believe in order to have life in his name. That is, that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is the Son of God. So let's pull this apart and look at each of these truths. Jesus is the Christ. What does that mean? 
It's important to remember that we are, we're not saved by believing certain um, important, but doctrines that are distinct to us. So here's what I mean. We are not saved by believing in, for example, believer's baptism. We are not saved by believing all the same thing when it comes to the extent of the atonement or the perseverance of the saints. So what that means is that not only can Presbyterians and Lutherans be saved, but so can Arminians and Mennonites. All who have called upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We are not saved by believing our particular doctrinal distinctives, as important as they are. Rather, we are saved by believing and confessing certain truths about Jesus. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And if those statements are true, if what Paul wrote there to the Romans are, is true, if he is the risen Lord, then he is by definition the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer. Now, know this, this is a Christian church. Um, that means that we believe in the resurrection and we believe that it is the truth. That means that we believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. That means that we believe that Jesus is the Christ. So what does that mean? Well, the word Christ uh, or, or Christos in the Greek, that's a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. So Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is the English version of the Greek word for Christos, same meaning. It means anointed one. Jesus himself claimed this when he quoted from Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, when Jesus said this, he's claiming this title for himself. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He is proclaiming, he is claiming right there to be the, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He's saying that God himself has anointed him, that he is the anointed one who brings the good news. Now in the scriptures... To be anointed or anointing usually means two things. It, it, it sets a person, usually a person, sometimes things are anointed, but well, let's stick with persons here. To be anointed sets a person apart as holy and consecrated. But it also gives, uh, confers authority on the person who is anointed. Additionally, that holiness and that authority is, that, is, uh, that we can see in the one who is anointed is considered to be given by God himself. Okay, Think of Samuel anointing David king. He did that because God told him to. And so David acted as king based on God's authority. Samuel was just the prophet. Samuel was just the one who did the work. 
And so um, while other people or even sometimes, as I said, things are anointed in the Old Testament, in reality there are three basic anointed offices at work among God's people in order for them to function and live in such a way that is for, for their good and his glory. So the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, serves all of those offices, all three. That's prophet, priest, and king. So throughout the Old Testament, the prophet, the prophet revealed God's ways and God's words to the people, right? Think of Moses speaking on behalf of the people, speaking to God. And going to the people, and God says to him repeatedly throughout the Pentateuch, throughout the first five books of the Scriptures, or really Exodus through Deuteronomy, God goes to Moses and says, say this to the people. Tell the people that I said this. So he speaks to the people on behalf of God. He led the people as a prophet. He was the mouthpiece of God. Thus saith the Lord, hear, O Israel, the word of the Lord. John tells us right in the very first verses of this book that that Jesus is the Word made flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this anointed prophet reveals God's ways to Nicodemus, for example, when he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This was Jesus prophesying, telling the truth to Nicodemus, saying this is what God wants you to know. Likewise, a little bit later, when he encountered the Samaritan woman at the well, in John chapter 4, verse 14, he says this to her, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And she responded by saying this, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus revealed the truth of God as a prophet, not only in his words, but also in his very person, so that she ran back to her own people and proclaimed, come, see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Can this be the Christ, the anointed one? But we also know that Jesus was more than a prophet, right? He was more than just a prophet. Remember that crucially important statement. I've already said it once. When he responded, he was teaching his disciples in John chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. He says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then in verse 9, he said this, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus, Jesus is the perfect anointed prophet who has revealed not only God's words and God's ways to his people, but he's also revealed God himself. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus serves in that office as prophet, but it's a perfect prophet. 
But not only is he a prophet, he's also a priest, really our great high priest. So he is prophet, priest, and king. He is the anointed one who is priest. Now the priest served by bringing God's people into his presence for service and worship. So the Old Testament priests brought the people of Israel into the holy presence of God by offering a sacrifice, or multiple sacrifices, to atone for sin. John the Baptist, himself an Old Testament prophet, proclaimed this back in John chapter 1. He said, behold, pointing at Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's an amazing statement. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is amazing because Jesus is the sacrificial lamb and also the true priest. And it was this true priest who would go on to cleanse the temple, to offer himself up as the final and perfect sacrifice for sin when he went to the cross. Hebrews has much to say about Jesus as priest. And since we've spent so many Uh, weeks talking about his priestly work of atonement here over these last few chapters. Let me just remind you of this statement. It's from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. The preacher of Hebrews writes this, or says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In fact, that tells us that his work as our great high priest continues. And so we must go to him in prayer where he continues to mediate for us, where he continues to go to the Father and pray for us on our behalf. Jesus is our great high priest, but he's also God's anointed king. Israel's kings ruled God's people on his behalf. By and large, most of them were wicked, but they were still established by God. John presents Jesus as the anointed king over his people. And in fact, he makes a big deal about the inscription on the cross that Pilate had written. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Made a big deal about that. Pilate wouldn't even remove it when he was asked. But even before the cross, we could see Jesus' absolute sovereignty over nature over sickness, over blindness, and even over death. He changed water into wine. He is sovereign over the elements of nature. He calmed the storm. He walked on the sea. He he healed a variety of sicknesses and infirmities. Jesus is absolutely sovereign over the natural world. We could see his kind benevolence as he fed the 5,000. He cares for his people. We saw his authority as he commanded Lazarus to come out of the grave. Yet, Yet Jesus is not the great military leader. He's not the conqueror that they had called for on Palm Sunday. Not yet anyway. 
Instead, he would send his disciples to build his kingdom. And they, and we, can do this because he was lifted up on the cross. They and we can build his kingdom because he has passed through the heavens, because he has ascended to the Father's right hand where he waits from that time until his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. To confess that Jesus is the Christ is to say that he speaks for God as a prophet. That he makes an atonement for sin, bringing a sacrifice for sin as a great high priest, and that he reigns as king over all, even even your life, as Lord. To say that Jesus is the Christ is to confess that he is the prophet, priest, and king. But do you know what really riled up the Pharisees and even confused his disciples? It wasn't so much that he was the Messiah. It was that he also said that he was the Son of God. That really had them upset. And this is the second truth to believe. John says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, Jesus is the Son of God. See, the people of... Israel had been looking for another Moses to lead them out of captivity. They'd been waiting for another David to restore the kingdom and rule over them. They were waiting for a a, a Christ, for a Messiah. But they were not looking for one who is also the Son of God. They should have been. Because that had been God's plan and promise from the very beginning. Remember Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The very first promise of the gospel in the scriptures. God says this, actually speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Offspring. A son was promised. Eve knew what to look for. Eve knew to hope for a son. And so first she hoped in Cain. Listen to what she said when Cain was born in Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. The idea is she thinks he's a savior. He's going to crush the head of that serpent. You probably know how that worked out. Instead, he crushed his own brother's head. And so then when Seth was born, she said this, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Maybe it'll be Seth. Maybe the offspring to crush the head of the serpent will be Seth. But Eve made a big mistake, one that she, I I believe in reality, has passed on through her descendants throughout history, And that is that she was focused on herself. She said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. See, this son is not simply the son of Eve. The son is also the son of God. Compare her to Mary. When she first heard the news that she would bear the son of God, she offered up this praise in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. Let me just read this. This is the Magnificat. Mary said this, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. 
For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. But I want to be sure that you can see the significance that Jesus is the Son of God. I want to make sure that you understand the significance of that. So turn over to Luke chapter 3. just want you to see this. Luke chapter 3, look at verses 21 and 22. Verse 21 says this, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now just look at the next verse, verse 23. It begins like this, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And just let your eyes roll down over the next several verses. You don't have to sound them out. Just look at them. Look at the names. What do you see? The son of. The son of. The son of. The son of. All through. Just look at the last verse. Verse 38. I'll start in 37, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. The son of God. Jesus, though, is the beloved son, verse 22, you are my beloved son. Jesus, the son, it was supposed, of Joseph, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, all the way down to the last verse, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus is the beloved son, the one who's going to do what that other so-called son failed to do, Adam, Romans chapter 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The beloved son. And as a result of this, not only are we made righteous, Romans 5 tells us, we are made righteous through the Son's obedience, but John 1.12 tells us, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's why he calls us brothers. 
That's why we are heirs with Christ to the, to the promises of God. And not only that, but when we believe these things, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we also have life in his name. Life in his name. Do you remember how John started? I'll read it again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That sounds an awful lot like Genesis chapter 1, doesn't it? In the beginning. That's by design. That's because Jesus is the new Adam. He is the true son of God who was obedient where Adam was disobedient and he brings life where Adam brought death. Jesus is presenting a a completely new creation through Jesus Christ. One that sees the defeat of sin and death. Adam experienced death's sting. Adam knew that. Think about this. His son killed his other son. Because Adam disobeyed God. He experienced in his own family the sting of death. He saw death have victory not only over Abel's body, but over Cain's heart. He saw this. But Christ's resurrection... In his work on the cross and in his resurrection, we experience life that cannot be overcome by death, just as light cannot be overcome by darkness. J.C. Ryle has been incredibly helpful um, in the study of John's gospel. And so I want to finish with this quote. And then we will come to the table. J.C. Rouse says this, he says, Let us settle it firmly in our minds that the divinity of Christ is one of the grand foundation truths of Christianity. And let us be willing to go to the stake rather than let it go. Unless our Lord Jesus is very God of very God, there is an end of his mediation, his atonement, his advocacy, his priesthood, his whole work of redemption. These glorious doctrines are useless blasphemies unless Christ is divine. Forever let us bless God that the divinity of our Lord is taught everywhere in the scriptures and stands on evidence that can never be overthrown. Above all, let us daily repose our sinful souls on Christ with undoubting confidence as one who is perfect God as well as perfect man. He is man and therefore can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He is God, and therefore is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him. That Christian has no cause to fear, who can look to Jesus by faith and say with Thomas, my Lord and my God. With such a Savior, we need not be afraid to begin the life of real religion. And with such a Savior, we may boldly go on. So whatever happens next week, next month, whatever happens in our lives, whether it's things that we think are in the future or if our world is turned upside down, if we get sick, 
whatever calamity and suffering we might face, we can boldly go with Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God. Because we're safe. Because we're safe no matter what. Because of what he has done. Because of who he is. Pray with me. Lord, we come to you and we, um, we confess. We confess as a church that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But Lord, I know that I can only confess that for myself. I can't make a statement and save people who hear me. It is only Jesus who can save. And so, Father, it is my prayer that if there are any here, any who hear this and have not yet confessed my Lord and my God, have not yet believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and thereby have life in his name, that they would, that they would believe. Father, I pray that for those of us who have believed that we would be strengthened, that we would remember that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the perfect and complete prophet, priest, and king, that he has spoken to us on your behalf, that he continues to pray for us uh, to you directly, that he has gone to heaven to sit where he always lives to make intercession for us, and that he reigns over all. Father, we trust in him, the Son of God. And Lord, as we come to the table, we proclaim his death and we long for his return. We proclaim his victory over sin, his victory over the results of sin in this world, ultimately death. We cling to the resurrection and we long for Christ to return. Remind us of these things each day, Lord. Not just when we gather together, but every time we wake that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.